podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another Wagon Wheel podcast. I'm Jared Kimber. This is my show. You're either listening to this live on Spotify Green Room or we uploaded it on YouTube or it's on my Red Inca podcast. Thanks for coming along and huge thanks to our supporters as well. So Manscaped, who you can get a 20% discount and free worldwide shipping by putting the code Red Inca or one word in on their website and you can shave your balls better than you currently shave them. I could give you a glowing testimony depending on whether you're watching or listening to this you may not want that but essentially it's a good product go get it big shout out also to bodyline t-shirts i've got on one of my t-shirts today retired hurt one where the guy has a broken arm in the picture which is probably a little bit too on the nose for me but uh, it's a good t-shirt i do like it and huge thanks to everyone who uh, buys me a coffee on buy me a coffee um, which you can find uh, in the show notes or just by typing jared kimber buy me a coffee i suppose and also Patreon. So if you do follow us on Patreon and you have a first-class membership or above, you have the ability to ask questions on this here podcast to start the show. So Andrew has done all those things. And he says, why is all the talk around Australia's tour of Pakistan about playing 19 spinners or minus batting on building supplies um, to train for spin? Uh, why are we assuming the pitchers in Pakistan will be ragging turners? He's got some stats here about um, how, how well the... the um, Quicks have done in the PSL um, and in a few other games, I think he's got here as well. And in uh, five tests since 2018, uh, top three wicket takers are seamers with two spinners in there. Is it just racism for lack of a better word? It's been to places. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So, Andrew, I think this is a really good question. I would say that they know that some of the pitches are going to spin. And they're also, what they try and do before they go on these tours is they try and prepare themselves for absolute carnage spin. And at the same time, they try and get ahead of the fact that the other team's probably going to produce a ragging turning wicket. So the best one I can think of of recent times was 2016 when they went to India. Was it 2016 or 2017? Whenever that tour was. I was there, but time means nothing before COVID, I suppose. Uh, but if you have a look at that, uh, you know, they really, really went out and, and about, whereas actually there were some tests where the seamers played, you know, I think it was in Bangalore, uh, Bangalore where the Indian seamers bowled really, really well and probably kept India in the game. Then obviously the final match was about seam bowling. So they do do this. Um, and I think that they, they, they sort of think they can handle seam bowling and not handle spin. So they sort of prop up the spin. Um, side of it and there will be wickets in Pakistan that will spin um, you know we don't know exactly uh, how the wickets are going to play because we don't have as much test experience on them obviously we have some first class numbers to have a look at but we do know that basically uh, there's going to be a couple of pitches that are going to be spin but as you said Pakistan doesn't spin as much um, as as other places and it's probably one of the reasons that reverse swing came from there because if you think about it reverse swing we know that West Indians um we're certainly getting the ball to reverse at one stage. We know that Victorians were certainly getting the ball to reverse swing, but they probably didn't need it as much as the Pakistani bowlers did. So, um, and that's partly probably due to, you know, some of the pitchers not helping spinners as much. So you seamers have to be become more important. Um, but it's a very good question. Satchmo says, how would you make it harder for captains like Joe Root to use slow over rates as a deliberate tactic in tests? Yeah, it's, uh, Satchmo, it's, it's uh, you know... It, <laughs> 
The biggest problem with slow overreads at the moment is not the bowling captains. The biggest problem at the moment is the batters, the umpires, and the fact that none of the cricket boards care. Um, the RCC is not really in charge. There are many different things that we could do, uh, obviously, to change slow overrates. I don't think we ever want to get back to a point where teams are bowling 65 overs in, in a day. And so what I think they're really doing at the moment is allowing for that sort of middle ground. I don't think they're going to crack down until we have more, uh, until in, unless we go to four-day tests. If we go to four day tests, they will crack down. But there's plenty of ways that you could do it. Uh, you know, run penalties is the absolute easiest. But there's no point just cracking down on on the bowling captains at the moment because they're just maybe sixty percent of the problem. But they are certainly not all the problem. Uh, you know, I think I might have talked about this before, but when we were with Scotland uh, and we're in the UAE for the qualifiers, obviously Scottish players in the UAE, it's not their natural climate, uh, and they were they were struggling with the heat, and we. You know, we didn't get any extra um, ability to. We couldn't run gloves on every five minutes like uh, the major teams do, or anything like that. The umpires really crack down on overrates. They do it in first class cricket all the time. Um, in the game, stop wasting time. Get on with it. Um, and uh, England's always been very good at, at at using at slowing it down. I would say that they're probably I'm trying to think. I can't think of a team that's been better over the last few years at, at finding ways to use the overrates in in their advantage. But realistically, we need to change the entire system. It's not really just about bowling captains. Christopher says, do you think we'll see a major T20 league with no overseas restrictions? Um, it, look, uh, what was it? the last major one that looked like it was going to do it was the T20X. I think that was what it was called, or the XT20. Uh, sorry if I can't remember the full name there, um, which was in the UAE. Uh, they obviously... Uh, there was thoughts that maybe the Canada League might be that into the future as well. Um, was it the Emirates Premier League was another one. Uh, we will have one. Whether it will be a major one is a more interesting thing. I think one day, I, I'd be shocked if in 20 years' time when Indian cricket is so strong that they need to worry about having local player restrictions. I could be wrong. Um, but as more money comes in and more teams come in and there's going to be more spots for Indians anyway, I kind of just think it won't be as big of a deal. Uh, but you know, India is, and India is currently going through such a nationalistic wave, right? So if it's going to happen in India, it's going to probably take a little while for that to happen. But realistically, it would be a much better competition if they did that. And probably better to sell overseas, whether they care about that or not, is is something else. Um, uh, I'm I can't think of anyone else who probably is in the position to be able to do it where they think that they'll get enough local players still in the teams um, to be able to do that. So, uh, you know, in order to be able to do it, you have to be so sure that the fans are going to watch on TV um, uh, and turn up at least in small amounts to the grounds. And I think that's why it's probably a big risk, unless you start it from scratch and you do something completely different, like with the other leagues that we were talking about. Um, but I would hope that... I, I would assume that within the next... 10 or 15 years, one of the competitions has worked it out and we could do that because it just, you know, it, it'll improve the quality of the game and um, it'll give more opportunities to cricketers from everywhere. You know, we get another Nepalese league spinner or, you know, uh, I mean, Singapore a couple of years ago um, when they were in the qualifiers, they had this old captain who bowled um, back of the hand slow balls and he was impossible to hit and he had a big, he looked like, an, you know, I, I described him as like an uncle going to a wedding. He didn't look like a professional athlete at all. But no one could hit. 
his his slow balls because of the amount of revolutions he got on on the ball. No team's going to take a chance with a player like that. Um, Whereas when you start to open up these leagues and it's just best player available, you know, maybe we start to see more cases where where players um, uh, do get picked in that sort of situation. And I think that would be better for cricket. Uh, Ray says, how do we get associate nations to develop more and make teams more upwardly mobile in terms of performance? So, so Ray, uh, Bob Walmart pretty much changed the face of cricket when he started investing co- modern coaching methods into associate teams. Um, Walmart, you know, uh, completely changed. The, the reason associate cricket is so strong right now is really largely to do with Bob Walmart, and then he's replaced by someone called Richard Doan, who's now currently coaching in the USA. Uh, uh, Walmart obviously gets a bit of credit, but probably not enough credit for changing cricket everywhere. Um, And Richard Doan doesn't get any credit and did an absolutely incredible job. What they did was really try and help teams out to just be slightly more professional, you know, giving them support. Uh, Richard Doan used to talk about the associate players as his players. Um, Like he was almost like the head coach of associate cricket. Um, uh, At that stage, it improved. Um, I think I was hired with Scotland um, under a, a, an agreement that the ICC had where you could hire special staff for tournaments. I think other people have had that. You know, you sometimes get, you know, really big name um, coaches go in. I think Derek Pringle might have done it recently as well. Um, you know, and, and that comes from a little bit of funding, but it also just comes from professionalism as well. Like, how do you get, how, how do these teams get better? Um, you know, uh, someone did. Um, I think I, I tweeted it recently about um, how to improve uh, how f- I'll try and get this right how fin- Finland's um, ice hockey team got so good um, and when you go through the list of what they did it was like it was very similar to what Iceland did in the football before we found out all the Icelandic footballers were um, terrible human beings but um, back back beforehand uh, you know that was the big story there are ways to be able to do this in small areas and it was something I really wanted to do in Scotland. It's something that they're trying to do in Ireland, uh, which is skill development, which is upping the skill in, you know, you're only going to get so many players. So how do we up the skills in all these different players? Some of it costs money, but some of it is just planning and just infrastructure um, and having the right people in the right jobs. So there's lots of different ways, but the, the most simple way really is probably again, to have someone like Richard Doan back at the ICC and the ICC got rid of him because they didn't, they didn't care about the associates. Uh, and I talk about the board there, not the people who run the ICC, but um uh, there's certainly at that point that there is there's no doubt that you could have like a de facto coaching system which can at least help the top 12 to 15 you know men and women um a, in an associate team which obviously then tri- trickles all the way down through the system but yeah uh there's no there's no simple way outside of giving them lots of money and actually let them play more um uh, Satch Bro says, have you ever been watching a test live and felt tail enders were being subjected to too much intimidating bowling with the umpire's protection? Um, I, I mean, there's two ways of looking at this. It, you know, when Phil Hughes died, there was a small philosophical question that I posed on Crick Info, which was, will we ever see a game of cricket without a bouncer? I think people think, oh, bounce is part of cricket, but it wasn't part of cricket. In fact, it's a fairly modern thing, really. I mean, Bodyline shows that. It wasn't that regular even in the 20s or 30s. And compared to Bodyline, I'd say there are well, Neil Wagner balls a lot more short balls than probably anyone in Bodyline did, right? So certainly we have more short balls now. We also have more protection now, which I think is also fair. Uh, and we also have better protocols on future health. So not just about death, but about you know concussion and 
um, CTE and all these sorts of things. However, we are sending out bowlers who are getting better at batting but are still not at the position where they are technically adept enough to be able to face 90 miles an hour at their throats. Uh, so I don't know if I've ever sat there and gone, oh, they shouldn't be doing this. I mean, I remember when Mitchell Johnson was at the peak of his uh, bowling, he was bowling to um, Robin Peterson and Ryan McLaren. They were batting at six and seven, and I didn't think they should be out, out there facing him, right? So I, I think that is also uh, worth looking at. But I, I think going forward, I think there's more people bowling faster bounces than there is or has been, and I think there'll be more incidents, and this will become a bigger conversation going forward. John says, a couple of weeks ago, he discussed the ultra-specialists. Can you ever see a future where competition playing conditions are amended to allow for specialist batters, bowlers, and wicketkeepers? Yes, because the 100 almost did it, and the Big Bash thought about it as well, which is why they've got that um, silly um, uh, other rule. Uh, I've certainly talked to people in those leagues. I don't think anyone at the IPL has ever had a serious conversation about this. But yeah, in my in my mind, eventually we'll probably have 15 um, players in some leagues, 15 team um, cricket in, in some leagues, where you'll have um, 11 batters um, and uh, you know four specialist bowlers um, uh, will be will will be playing. So I do see that um, as something that will happen, even with the hundred, with the you know the ability to bowl back to back and all those sorts of things. You might see different kinds of specialists come through there, although we haven't seen anyone. Um, specifically, but you know, for someone like Shaheen Afridi, uh, if he can bowl the first 15 balls of a game, um, and you have the, the conditions to be able to do that, then that's what you would get Shaheen Afridi to do. You can find other bowlers to bowl at the death. Um, you can't find another Shaheen Afridi. So I certainly think there would be players that, that that's a possibility going into the future. And that will then breed more ultra specialism, of course. Um, AB says, uh, what teams have done best with their retentions release and releases in the 100? Owen Morgan and Tom Curran stand out as going for too much money. Conversely, Tim David and Will Smith look like bargains. Tim David definitely looks like a bargain. AB, I couldn't disagree with you there. The one that I thought was most interesting, and I haven't seen anyone write about this yet, um, so uh, apologies if someone's written a really good piece about it or done a podcast that I've missed it, but um, Wales basically gutted their entire squads, um, their men's and women's. Uh, which I thought was extraordinary. I mean, how many mistakes must they have made uh, to do that? So that was the one, yeah, I, I, you know, I quickly had a look at it online, but that was the one I went, whoa, what has happened here? That's a pretty big admission of, I want to say guilt, but maybe not, you know, pretty big admission that you got everything wrong in your first season if you're already regutting your entire franchise. So I found that really, really interesting, uh, especially because it was men and women. And it was like wholesale, like... <laughs> Just uh, bizarre. And then Kumar says, uh, with the NBA All-Star just completed, I wonder if T20 leagues could have something similar or if the ICC would have something similar with the teams of the year. I mean, we're, we're, you know, World 11s and those sorts of things. We've, we've done them before, Kumar. They're not that popular. They don't make that much money. That's why we don't have them, um, if we're being honest. To be honest, the All-Star competition is kind of just for kids at this point, um, as much as anything. Um, I... I just don't know when there's the time you would have to set it up. I would have thought that if the ICC, um, sorry, everyone, if I just booted the camera there, I would have just thought if the ICC, when the ICC, so, you know, in that mo in that time where they got rid of Richard Doan and where they got rid of, um, uh, you know, all those different people, uh, you know, uh, and they started firing people <laughs> uh, left, right and center and their, their CEO who's now being fired or let go himself. 
they were trying to maximize money. I would have thought that would have been the period that they would have done it if they thought it could have made any money. The fact that they didn't come up Kumar would suggest to me that it doesn't make enough money. Uh, James says, do you think there'll be more um, crossover of non-English language terms in the lexicon of English-speaking cricket cultures due to T20 franchises and social media? We have Dusa from um, Urdu um, and some um, Hindi swear words. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the one thing I would say... Um, the one thing I would say with that is that the English language was shaped by cricket as much as cricket was shaped by the English language at times. So, you know, you see, hear Americans say things like sticky wicket and hat trick. And um, I, I was on, um, on an Australian comedy podcast recently um, talking about all the different phrases um, uh, that, uh, that have come from cricket that are just part of normal language. So I do think that English and cricket are obviously incredibly intertwined. But yeah, I think there will be more um uh I think there will be more words used. I remember there's a great documentary and it's not a documentary actually there's a great film called Sugar. It's one of the best sport films I've ever seen. It's really honest. Um and it's made by weirdly it's made by the same directors who went on to make Captain America, I think. Um, uh, the, 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 the part, uh, the, the, the man and the woman whose name I've now forgotten, but they're br brilliant directors. I've you know, been following their movies for years and they made this movie about baseball. And I remember when they showed the Dominican, I think it was Dominican, uh, baseball camps and the only English they're teaching everyone is, is the, uh, you know, is, um, bunt and swing away and cutter and all these sorts of things. I, and curveball and everything. I was thinking, wow, it's, they're not teaching them real language. They're just teaching them the baseball language. And you, you know, you sit, you hear like one of my favorite things, you know, occasionally I'll come across in Hindi or in Urdu or, you know, Sinhalese um, video and like someone will be talking and the only words I understand are the, are the cricket terms um, or the names of the players. So, I, uh, yes, I think it will happen, James. I think it's a natural evolution. Uh, it's probably a natural evolution of how the English language works as well, doesn't it? It sort of steals words from other languages, which is part of the reason other than the empire why it's been so successful. Uh, plus it's shit easy to to say to you know say words maybe in english i don't know ian says uh really like the piece on the t20 historical picks if you haven't talk, heard about uh, if you haven't seen that video yet go and have a look because i've been talking about it for months on this very podcast and it was great to finally get it out but yeah i essentially i used my knowledge of history and my knowledge of t20 analysis and brought them together to look at the players who aren't the most likely to have been t20 stars in their day but to see how they still would have played t20 cricket um uh, which of the West Indies heyday quicks would you most like to have seen play T20? Well, I suppose Ghana is the most obvious one. I think if you look at the numbers in one-day cricket, I think Ghana has the second-best record of any bowler ever. I think he's just behind Glenn McGrath. Uh, and that's when you factor in um, it, the eras that they played it. That's just how much better Ghana was than anyone else. So, I mean, he's the absolute obvious one. Really be interested in him and how much he continued to bowl the Yorker. Uh, Malcolm Marshall would be really interesting as well. I think from a skill perspective, like he could kind of do everything. What would it be like with all, the, you know, with the slow balls would become a sort of a slow ball bowler. I'm trying to th think if, would it be like Bhuvi Kumar, but you know, quicker, um, a real, yeah, again, a very, very interesting, uh, play. So I think those are the two obvious ones. Um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any sort of all-roundery talent as well that they sort of had. 
I mean, Ian Bishop would have been a really, really interesting one as well. Tall with the ability to swing it um, and probably could bat better than slightly some of the others. I'm not sure if he ever would have been a great T20 hitter and Bishop could probably answer that more than I could. But um, I think he would have been one of the other ones. He's sort of forgotten as one of those great guys because he had so many injuries. But, you know, potentially he could have been uh, Kyle Jameson before we had Kyle Jameson, I think. Um, if you look at his record, it's remarkable. Uh, Johnny says, um, why is it still the case that despite DRS, the ball starts to pitch and hit in line with the stumps to be given out LBW? Surely this would be done away with, as well as being simple, uh, simple and logical. Removing this would make the game more entertaining by bringing more ways of getting a batter out and removing the boring option for the batter of patting the ball away. Well, I don't know, Johnny. Batters don't really pat the ball away um, at all. And if you pat the ball away and it hits you outside the line of off stump, you're still out LBW. That's why that law's in. So um, patting the ball away won't change with that particular law change you're talking about. What you will find, though, is that my guess is you'd see a huge drop in um, in the uh, um, uh, in the in, in the batting average far more than we've seen over the last uh, three or four years or five years, whatever it is now. Um, uh, it, I, I don't think it would make the game better. I don't think it would make cricket shots better. Uh, we're already seeing, for mine, uh, bowlers are already dominating, especially in test cricket, one day, and T20. Um, you know, I'm not sure you need to make a, a, a law change that big to bring the bowlers back into it. Um, but I, I think, basically, cricket shots wouldn't be as good. I think that's the most basic uh, way I can probably explain it to you. I don't think cricket shots would be as good, whereas the original law... Um, of uh, uh, where if it hits the ball, if the pad hit, if the ball hits your pad outside the line and you're not playing a shot, to bring in that particular law made cricket better because it meant that pe people played more shots. In this particular case, it would make people play a lot more weird shots. So I can't see Johnny how that would um, improve cricket at all. Uh, but thank you very much for your question. Thanks to everyone for their questions. And let's head over to the people on the green room. Hello. Hey, Basco. How you doing, mate? Hey, long time. Yeah, you have been doing things quite late in my time too. Yeah, so I had a question about uh, T20 international opening, and I've been watching a lot of uh, like India West Indies right now and Australia Sri Lanka and that. And I, uh, what I found was that uh, like most teams have a lot of choice of openers, but now they are also trying like very uh, funky opening combinations, like uh, 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 Myers opening for West Indies or Agar opening for. Uh, uh, Australia and it seems like except for Pakistan and England, most countries are a bit confused on how they should go about opening a T20s because after Gale is retired, I think West Indies is still finding a way of like uh, whether they should have a solid opening batsman or a hitter in that way. And whereas I think India also is like now explaining with Ishan Kishan. So do you think that uh, is the Pakistan way of uh, like having the most steady batsman and the best uh, PSL batsman going? Uh, at the top is better, or is, uh, is it just an experiment teaching field before the World Cup? On that particular note, there is no better. There is kind of what works for you. The, the best possible situation would be to have someone who um, who has a strike rate of 160 in the first five balls, but still averages 45 while, you know, keeping that strike rate throughout the innings, right? Um, the reason that Pakistan have the ability to have the more solid batters at the top is because they have strike bowlers themselves, right? So... You can't do that if you don't have strike bowling capability. If you don't have strike bowling capability, you probably need more attacking batters at the top. So that's why they do that. Why some teams are experimenting. So so if you look at the West Indies case with Kyle Mayers, they're trying to work out if they can slip Kyle Mayers into the top uh, because that's the easiest position for him to bat, right? 
which would then give them another left-arm bowling option, you know, uh, to give them more variety within their team. Um, and they're also, I think they're flirting with the idea of sort of having outside of, well, Puran and Hetmeyer, um, of having almost everyone in their team be an all-rounder, or Lewis, I suppose, as well. But I have almost everyone in their team be an all-rounder. So they have, you know, supreme flexibility with their bowling and they can bat to maybe 9-10 um, in, in most games. So... I think teams are, that's why you're seeing some of this experimentation. You know, teams are looking at different sort of uh, lineups that will work for them uh, and then trying to, you know, come up with the best system. Um, but as you said, like, also, like, um, it, there's so many openers out there that I think what teams are trying to work out now is, okay, so we have four, our five best batters in our country are openers. We obviously don't want them all to be opening uh, for us. So can we experiment a little bit and try different sort of formations and different styles of openers? Um, uh, you know, the Carl Mayers one is quite interesting to me because I would have thought that what the West Indies wanted was a right-handed opener to go with Evan Lewis. Um, uh, but um, uh, although I think they did try a right-hander for a little while as well, didn't they? But um, it was a Brandon King, wasn't it? I might've opened um, for, for a little while there. It was shot. I don't think Shy Hope will be at the next world cup. I think I'd be shocked if that's the case, but but yeah, so I think um, I think yeah, there's a little bit of an experimentation just with with all those lineups, which is what another reason why I don't really take T20 internationals that seriously, uh, because teams aren't always trying to win; they are trying to get miles into different players. They're trying to try new game plans, and it's very rare that you ever have your top eleven anyway. So it's um, it's almost an experimental form of T20 cricket where there's probably a lot to be learned from watching it, um, because people are probably throwing a lot of shit at the wall and hoping some of it sticks. Thanks for your question, mate. Keshav, you there? Yeah, hi. There he is. Hey, doing, mate? What's your question? Hi, Jared. Congrats on uh, 100 podcasts on Red Inca, first of all. Oh, thank you. I uh, really enjoyed your uh, 100th podcast. Very beautiful anecdote. Uh, so my question is, uh, so last time I was not able to ask any question, but I was listening to the wagon wheel and uh, there was a mention about PSL. So, uh, mm-hmm. my question is regarding that. Uh, you know how historically PSL has been labeled as this bowling-heavy league where the standard of bowling is supposedly better than other leagues and, you know, uh, some former cricketers have also come on record and said that. Mm-hmm. So, my question is, like the, the observation I made is, uh, oftentimes we have seen in PSL players like Shadab Khan, you know, who, who bats at four NPSL, he smashes like 40 ball 90. Uh, or even we have seen players like Asif Ali, Fahim Ashraf, who haven't had this kind of success while batting in international level. They have really good, strong numbers in PSL. And even if you go back a little bit, PSL has, has had a lot of uh, near retirement players like Brad Haddon or Luke Ronke in the previous seasons making a hell lot of runs. So if People like these are making so many runs. Why would somebody label PSL as a bowling-heavy league or, you know, where bowling standards are high? You just named five people who aren't very good at batting and then ask me why people would say it's not stronger for bowling. I think you answered your own question. I mean, you literally answered your own question. If those are the leading batters in that league and Ben Dunk is a leading batter in that league, then it's not strong. We can, we can test how strong it is as a batting league by taking those batters out and having a look at them in other leagues. And we know it doesn't transform as, as much as it should. So we know that PSL is not a strong batting league because the players who are dominating there with the bat are not particularly strong. Uh, we know that when you take the Pakistani bowlers out, however, and you take them to other leagues, 
they do really well in the big bash and and these other leagues. So that if you're if you're mining for talent, the talent from the bowling stands up a lot more from the Pakistani side than the talent for the batting does. People are still going to make runs. I suppose that's the easiest way of explaining what you're saying. People are still going to make runs, right? You're never going to have a tournament when no one makes any runs. They, Bangladesh Premier League is a very tough tournament for anyone to score quickly in. People still make runs in it. Very average batters make runs in the, in that league. So uh, I, I can see what you're saying, but that's not when it's not. You're looking at it from one particular league. You never gonna have a league where like it, everyone averages ten, right? People are still going to be able to make runs. But when you take out those players and you test them around the world, that's the bowling talent that really shines out. And that's why we know that that's a particularly uh, a bowling-heavy league. Also, traditionally, although I'm not sure if this is still the case because I haven't looked at it a, a recent time, traditionally it was a lower batting average, I think, in the PSL than some of the other leagues. Um, uh, and uh, there were certain periods of the game. Generally, if I remember correctly, the power play and the death when um, the bowlers really, really dominated in those leagues. Um, it's usually the middle overs, uh, perhaps uh, because over the last couple of years, Pakistan hasn't produced as many top quality spinners as they used to. But it was the middle overs, I think, where people made a few more runs. But the power play and the death uh, was a little bit different. The only thing I would call you up on was that Luke Gronke was still a gun um, and probably could still come out in most leagues in the world and probably still average 30 with a strike rate at 150. So how much of this you think can be attributed to the fact that earlier the league used to happen in UAE and now it's been happening in Pakistan for last couple of years where the economy rate has gone up. So do you think this perception can change in the future that it's not anymore a bowling heavy league? I th- that will change when gun Pakistani batters start getting picked up for lots of money, right? It's not going to change before then because the, 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 the market will basically will work it out, right? If those players still aren't going, so you've got guys like Shoaib Malik, you know, striking the ball at 115, um, and I'm trying to think who else. I mean, they really didn't have that many. They, yeah, Hafiz, they really didn't have many Pakistani batters going around the world getting paid, right? Um, that's not just because it was played in the UAE. That's because Pakistan wasn't really developing those kinds of players. Um, Fakir Zaman should be in more leagues. We know how talented he is, but he hasn't really come on as a T20 player. Some of that is going to be perception as well, and some of it might be from the strike rates. Although the, the interesting thing is, I don't know if you saw, I did a piece on Bangladesh and, and in T20. I thought that it was clearly the pitches that were causing all the problems with the, Pakistan, with the Bangladeshi batters. That's why their numbers weren't particularly good in their local league. But when you compare them to the overseas players, um, it was it was very different. I'd have to have a look at the PSL. I, I haven't looked into it in that depth. But the best Pakistani, you know, when 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 you hear oh, I, I, a new Pakistani players, you know, popped up in the in in the Big Bash or um, in in South Africa or in in New Zealand or in one of these other smaller leagues, there are almost always bowlers, right? That's not by accident. So. Um, I think we know the talent in general is still higher with bowling. And then what you've got now is a lot of batters like Shoaib Malik, Muhammad Afiz, Rizwan, uh, Baba. Um, uh, very good, but not very high quick scoring players, right? Slow starters, longer uh, players. I know some, some of those guys, Muhammad Afiz obviously changed his game around quite a bit. But, and Shoaib Malik's um, done some good innings. And they could all, all do something. But again, those aren't the players that necessarily get paid the most money. So the one Pakistani batter that probably found himself in as many leagues as possible was probably Asif Ali, right? Who's a hitter. Um, and we haven't seen that many others. So, yeah, that's why I say, it. Uh, you know, um, I think some of this can be hard. And as you said, the wickets play a big role. But generally, when you look beyond the wickets, it's like 
Put it this way, if everyone in the, in the PSL had a flattened record when it came to their batting, it would show, like people, when they go to other leagues, there'd be a big jump in their strike rates. And that hasn't, that hasn't been the case. You know, Shel Malik did, you know, was not lighting up the CPL. You know, he was playing for Guyana, to be fair to him, so it was hard to light up anything. But, but yeah, I think, so I think that's part of the reason. Just one last point. I mean, you can understand uh, with people like Hafiz or Malik, Babur is one. I mean, their strike rates uh, in these leagues or internationals, there's not much of a difference. But when somebody like a Shadab, he recently scored a 40-ball 90. You can't possibly imagine him doing it at international level against quality attacks, right? I can. I think Shadab, I think he's a fantastic cricketer. And I don't understand why people haven't... Uh, the amount of hate he's got from Pakistani fans. He is a... At the first time I saw him play, I was like, this guy could be absolutely anything with bat, with ball, or in the field. I think he is a huge talent, and I disagree. I mean, he may not be able to do it in a World Cup final um, against, you know, one of the best bowling attacks in the world, but could he do that against, you know, Zimbabwe or a weakened New Zealand attack or West Indies experimenting? Yeah, he could. He's, he's, he's a fine player. Uh, so, so, no, I disagree. And Asif Ali has shown that he can do the exact same thing against top-level bowlers as well. So, you know, a lot of... And you talk about before, who the, some of the other players you're talking about, Brad Haddon, Luke Ronke. These are still really, really top-level cricketers. This isn't, you know, guys who are... This isn't guys who are playing second um, 11 in, in county uh, cricket system. So, anyway, mate, thanks so much for your question. Thank you. Ashish, you there? Yeah, so I just wanted to ask, but I'm watching India with the team and I don't know if you were paying close attention to it, but I won't. Like, the Rothman problem, from what I was like looking at the online discussion forum, that it looked as if he had improved on his batting game spin. So I wanted to ask whether you observe whether he has made discernible improvements against spin. Uh, yeah, well, so essentially, Robin Powell. So in 2018, when I was general manager of St. Lucia, I wanted to bring him over to play at St. Lucia. Um, to have basically um, my idea was, you know, to have a middle order of him, Karen Pollard and Darren Sammy. Um, the biggest concern I had was the, the wrist spin thing. He really struggled with spin in general and he was an absolute brilliant player of place, but it was how you sort of fitted him into that sort of environment. The problem for me is that it took him a long time for him to, I think, accept how bad he was against spin. And, and that's fair. You know, players spend most of their time trying to get themselves in a positive mindset that so they can go out and perform these sorts of feats that quite often they don't want to get too involved in the sort of negativity i think what he's gone off and done is he's probably from from what i've seen he's gone off and given himself probably two or three key shots against spinners he's tightened his defense against spin which from my memory he was all over the place when he defended um and it looks like he's got slightly better with his feet when he needs to so if they do make a mistake on on the length um, he can cash in on that. Whereas my my memory from before was he was a little bit more crease brand unbound. He had no real defense, and all he could do was slog spin. So even if he hit you six, chances are you were going to get him, uh, or you were going to get a bunch of dot balls um, th there and about. And so from what he said publicly, I do know his agent, but I haven't really had a chat to him. But from what Robman said publicly, it sounds like the penny finally dropped. He went off. He worked on spin, and he's come back. And he didn't need to be that much better against spin because he is absolutely phenomenal against pace bowling all he really needs to do is be what, what's the best way of putting it better than chris lynn is maybe do you know what i mean that chris chris lynn is not good enough against spin to have a good career in t20 cricket despite the fact he should 
You just need to be better than that. You just need a couple of out shots. You just need to make that nervous. Whereas before, I remember, I'm trying to think, there was a game where I saw Rovman play where there were two leg spinners in the opposition and he came out to bat and they came on from either end, right? It was so obvious that he had that issue before. And I think this is a big problem with a lot of West Indian players, not just wrist spin, but uh, with the way they're very good at maximizing their strengths they're not very good at the moment at minimizing their weaknesses. Whereas for whatever reason, players, other players around the world aren't as good as maximizing their strengths as the West Indians, but they're better at minimizing their weaknesses. And I think that if the West Indians can work out how to do that with, I mean, Odin Smith and, you know, Rodman Powell and Shafane Rutherford and Romario Shepard and, you know, Hetmeyer and Puran, the talent is undeniable. But it doesn't work if everyone knows that, oh, well, to stop them, we just need to do this and this. And I think that that's what Rodman probably got to the point where it was limiting his employment opportunities. You know, he went from an IPL player to really a fairly, you know, low-level journeyman, and he's way too good a player for that. Yeah, I like that. And I just want to ask one more question. So, like, I, mm-hmm. I noticed, again, like, Westerly, like, I, I think we all the watches before the same conversation now, that the Westerlies are looking to go for 10 or the low, like, yeah, I mean, including the one for the ticket people. But how mm. close are we in the very cricket for a team to feel like 10 all round balls, whereas like you're able to, the skill level, I mean, you, you can't really say that both skills will be equal, but it stays there in that you can theoretically put a number 10 and 11 batsmen to open the batting and you can just do a lot of hockey stuff when confused about yeah. position that thing. So you're asking how close we are to a team having 11 all-rounders. Well, England did that in the 2016 World Cup. They had Adil Rashid batting at number 11 with 11 first-class hundreds. So we've had it uh, already. It's much more likely to happen in international cricket than it is in franchise cricket because in franchise cricket, the all-rounders go for too much money and you can't get as many as you want. Um, Although Chennai did an excellent job of getting almost 11 um, into their team last year realistically, very few of these players are actually all-rounders, right? You know, very few of the guys who can bat, you can depend on for four overs, let alone two overs uh, regularly. Um, And the same with the bowlers. More often, they're bowlers who can hit certain kinds of bowling or they're bowlers who can um, just slog in the the last 12 balls or whatever. But, you know, that's obviously the dream because it allows your top order to go a lot stronger. Um, And it allows your bowler, uh, your your captain to have much more bowling options. So it's certainly the dream to have 11 all-rounders, but there aren't that that many all-rounders out there. And also, T20 is also pushing people towards specialization in their skill sets. Does that mean that there'll be less all-rounders? Sorry, pardon me. There's a really good podcast I did uh, with Ben Lindbergh. Um, about ba- well, like baseball's never had any all-rounders. My career has had all-rounders uh, that you can go and listen to. Um, I, I found that it's a very fascinating episode. But um, yeah, thanks for your question. Thank you. There he is, Depeche. Yeah, hi, hi. Uh, so my question was the so going ahead, looking at the World Cup, uh, we all know that Jadeja is going to be the number one choice for India as a spinner. Who do you think should be the one who should know? Rob, because the World Cup is going to be in Australia, who do you think should be the one? Who should be there for support? Because we have options like Ashwin and Akshay Patel and Sundar. And now you also have Bishnoi and Chahal also. So who do you think will be the right combination? Hmm. Uh, it's a very good question. I would like... <laughs> the problem is that Akshar is the best option. I think Akshar is a better T20 bowler than Jadeja, but obviously nowhere near as good as Bata or as good a fielder, although he's a good fielder as well. 
I almost feel like he can't be in the squad unless he's an injury replacement because I can't see how they'll use twat two unless they happen to go up against a team that has a bunch of right-handers. I don't know. Someone like Scotland. Ashwin is still a fantastic bowler. Ashwin gives you the ability to bowl in the power play, as does Chakravarti. Uh, neither of them can field. Chakravarti obviously can't bat. Ashwin can bat, but only if you're like four for 12, um, or 12 for four, sorry, um, and you need to throw him in. So, yeah, I don't think there's any great answer. I think that Chahal is the best leg spinner at the moment, but I also don't mind Ravi Bishnoi. If, if Ravi Bishnoi had the better IPL... I wouldn't have any problem with him going over because I would say that fewer batters will have faced him and will understand him. On the big ground, I wonder if Chahal works better because he's a little bit slower and you have to hit him a bit more, whereas you can use Bishnoi's pace against him. And traditionally, outside of Tiger Bill O'Reilly and Chuck Fleetwood Smith, wrist spinners in Australia have been a little bit slower, right? They're not quite as quick. And, you know, the ability to try and hit them, whereas if you're bowling like Ravi Bishnoi, you can be, you can have the the large ground size used against you um, by using your pace. Um, so yeah, look, it's a, it's a really good question. I'm not sure. I think I would have Chakravarti, Ashwin, and Chahal as my three in my squad. Like if we were doing it today to go with Jadeja, although they might not want to take three, of course. Um, but they'd be my three first ones. But Bishnoi would be the one who he's got such great energy off the on, on the ball. Um, and has the ability to do that. The problem with all everyone I just said, though, is that uh, the leg spinners spin the ball the same way as Jadeja. So they might want to go with this from a different perspective altogether. And in that case, they might be thinking either Washington Sundar, um, Ashwin, or Chakravarti based on just the pattern um, of having one person spinning the ball away from right-handers and one spinning it away from the left-handers. But uh, I don't have a, a solid uh, answer for you there it, because I don't think there is a solid second option that, it, uh, that works um, 100% because you have to think of how they match up with Jadeja. And uh, I think you'll have to have the approach of horses uh, for courses, that sort of kind of... It will, and but also they won't be able to take that many spinners with them, which is part of the other problem, right? Because they're going to Australia. So it'll be really interesting. Thanks for your question. Hello, Hydrogen X. How can I help you? Hello. What's your question? My question was, what was your take when, first of all, uh, did you watch the IPL auction at all? Uh, I did not watch the IPL auction. I don't really watch the auction just because it frustrates me. Like, I don't watch the NBA draft either or the AFL draft. Um, but at the, at the end, like, I obsess over it. But um, at a time, I don't, I don't watch them, no. So, what was your take on that one particular role that every team should have as a T20i side? Uh, many people say that finisher is, like, the most important role and uh, it is, like, the most underrated role also in T20 cricket, but it is the most important. After that is death bowler, right? So, according to you, what is the most important? Well, certainly not a finisher. <laughs> um, because you can't guarantee that your finisher will face that many balls. So, they won't have as big an impact as, as anyone else. Uh, I, I generally look to the players that I would be spending the most money on are the players I assume are going to affect the most balls. So, all-rounders, opening batters, and absolute dead set four-over specialists. Uh, bowlers are the ones that are the most important. An opener who can bowl any overs, even if it's, you know, anything more than Chris Gale um, amount of overs is incredibly important. Uh, so someone like Shane Watson uh, was probably undervalued for a long time. And then obviously any sort of genuine all-rounder who's going to bowl at least, you know, three to three and a half overs per game and uh, can bat in the top, what, five or six 
is very, very important. So I th I'd say those are the two most important roles. Thanks for your question, Hydrogen X. Just enjoy saying that. Shramana, you there, Shramana? So the spread of cricket is obviously not a merry story. But was cricket ever an overtly racist game? And globally now, in the minds of people who run cricket, how much is it still kind of a colonial game? And how much is there still a sort of maybe racism, maybe fear of the other? And also, how much has the emergence of India as India, and also being India, helped or hurt the situation? And somewhat related to that, I would think, is why is, it, is this a major sport where the ICC doesn't think translators should be a more common sight in cricket? Not just translators. Let me take it a step further. The majority of cricket commentators in the world do not pronounce players' names correctly. And I've still yet to see a cricket board ever, when they release a team, explain the pronunciations of players' names. It's just like, all the preferred names. Like, how long did, I mean, until Ashwin actually said, don't call me Ravi, it just went on and on and on. Not to mention that people still say Cummings instead of Cummins. Like, it's so amateur. And, like, you follow the NBA and you get a press release from the NBA and it says the name, it says pronunciations of all the players and what they like to be known as. Yeah, no, it's really frustrating, that sort of stuff. Uh, cricket was always racist because society's always been racist. <laughs> um, you know, I've been all around the world. I've never been to a country that isn't racist. <laughs> it doesn't have racial issues. They all do. It's just part of society. Uh, it's part of the way that we've adapted as humans, sadly. Um, and then, you know, white people have made it a lot worse with the whole, the way that they run the world. So, yeah, cricket was always racist. I mean, the best way to tell you that was the fact that South Africa was a test-playing nation what 110 years sorry no that's not right 110 years 70 80 years i think and they only played white teams or teams with white players in them you know talk about cricket being a white sport uh at that stage you know australia didn't have any indigenous players even when england picked players of indian ethnicity there were always accusations that they weren't really english so you know all uh, west indies having a white captain i could go on the stories of, of race being involved in cricket but then it really does become a Commonwealth thing. And I, I think that a lot of the teams that probably would have originally had the racism against them, that weren't, play, weren't allowed to play against South Africa and um, were treated poorly by Australia and England, then part became part of the problem with, oh, we, own, uh, you know, we had to fight our way into cricket and we own cricket. And, you know, I've heard this from Sri Lankan and West Indian people at times, you know, I'm talking about cricket officials here. When when we're talking about the Olympics or associate teams or whatever, they must feel like, oh, you know, it's our sport. And I've always said that cricket isn't really the sport of England, Australia, or, you know, India, Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, whoever. It's just a sport that happened to get popular in a bunch of different countries. And I don't think that we always thought about that. So when I started writing in cricket, went back on my blog in the old days, the amount of times you would be told with a straight face by someone, ah, people outside the empire just don't like cricket. Right. And we just know that's not the case now. Uh, you know, Afghanistan, Nepal, you know, um, Japan, Singapore, Thailand, Brazil, Germany, we're seeing it more on Papua New Guinea. We're seeing it over and over again that countries outside the empire who weren't really involved in cricket originally do like cricket, would like to play more of it. Um, and, you know, and they've been kept out of it. So I think that causes a problem. The, the other problem is, I, I've always said that I think. I think that the, the thinking with India has always been wrong in that people say, oh, look, India is too powerful. They're ruining the game. India is the, the biggest gift that cricket could have. 
Um, having a country who is sees cricket as part of their identity, having a country with that many people who love the game, having a having a country that's a burgeoning economy um, all coming through is huge. What it's created is an incredible power imbalance, probably more so than when England was in charge and England ran some of these countries, right? Just because of the market of India and the size of India um, and, and the love of, of, of cricket in India. But, you know, having... You know, being an Australian who was around in Australia when cricket started to slip off a little bit, being an Australian who's moved to the UK, um, having toured places like the West Indies and New Zealand and South Africa where cricket is not as strong as it has been at other times. You know, uh, India might bring its problems in the politics of the game and the way that it's run, um, and certainly some of the people who run it, but uh, an absolute gift to the game of cricket itself. From a racial standpoint or, or a Commonwealth standpoint, as you said before, you know, the, there's such a divergence of opinion within the BCCI of what cricket should be, right? From test purists like Shrini, he owned a T20 team and still was an absolute test purist, all the way through to people who are just like, well, we don't even need international cricket anymore, right? We just want to run this. We'll run our own league. We'll make lots of money and, you know, we'll all get rich and happy off this. They're, that. Those two things exist in the BCCI. Um, and at the same time, you have, through the internet, through streaming, through social media, the ability for us to find out that, oh, wait a minute, George Munsey can play cricket and Charles Amini can play cricket and, um, uh, you know, Ali Khan can play cricket, um, you know, Sandeep Lamachane, all these guys that we from countries that we didn't necessarily think of as cricket nations. We now understand that, you know, that, all the previous thinking was nonsense. There is cricket out there. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Um, so the ICC can't suddenly pretend that these other countries aren't very good. And the more that they do, the more they kind of look stupid as an organization. Um, but it is still deeply rooted in, especially the, the men who run the game, uh, who are over the age of 50. They grew up in the era when the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, when, when cr international cricket basically was born. In that era, they want to go back to that kind of time and they don't understand why giving a bunch of money to a bunch of uh, people from a small village in Papua New Guinea or helping out um, a place which only has 24 really good cricketers in Africa is going to help them. Whereas we know that's not how things work and these things grow and they expand and, and then, you know, we have magical things that come from them. Uh, you know, who would have thought that, the you know, the best league spinner in the world would be an Afghanistani? absolutely incredible to be in a position where we are in the world at the moment, you know, in, in the world politically and, but also in cricket terms to have someone like that. So those are the sorts of issues that still happen. I think within cricket, there is still that mindset of, ah, oh, it's a Commonwealth game. It's a colonial game. And, and we, we fought our way past England and maybe even past Australia to get a chunk of it. Um, and we're not going to give it off to other people, but as the generations go and as there's more money, like, you know, if Japan, Japan made what the under 19 World Cup, didn't they? Um, if Japan takes into cricket, think of the money that will be available for the ICC. If Germany gets into cricket, if the USA get into cricket, right? And you, and you can't just promote them and not promote the other uh, smaller countries, right? There will be a knock on effect to that. So eventually it will be worth too much money to be able to do that. Do you think that like countries like Japan or Netherlands coming into the game or Brazil, they might actually come in and I don't know, demand translators or demand for their names to be said right. Because I don't think, I mean, as an Indian, I don't think we care so much and we kind of see it as, as 
our responsibility to learn English and show up knowing English, Virat Kohli should know English apparently. But maybe they don't think that way and they can say like, no, I need a translator here and the ICC will have to do it then. Yeah, so the whole translated thing with the ICC, I'm trying to think, was it the last 2019 World Cup they started edging towards it more? It's actually a far trickier thing than you would think because there's even from a language perspective, because, for instance, I wanted to interview an Afghanistani player for that World Cup and there was an Urdu speaker there and I knew that the Afghanistani player spoke Urdu. So I asked if we could do that. And, the, and it would, we could only do it if the Afghanistani player could get away from the team manager. Basically, if you do, if you, if you take Hindi and Urdu, a big, you know, a huge percentage of players um, speak those two languages across Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, um, and there's even uh, you know a few other players who who have picked that um, who have picked up little bits here and there. They don't want to be seen as speaking another language, so. I, I've got a feeling, I'm trying to remember the full story, but I've got a feeling that there was a translator who was doing Indi and Urdu for an ICC event. And there might there was a problem that was caused by the fact that the Indian or the Pakistani wasn't happy that this person was mixing up some of the syntaxes or something like that, right? And Jun Chopra, I think, and Harris Roth in this T20 World Cup. She was started no, that, somewhat softened. Yeah, no, that but that's another situation. Look, I think I think you're right. How far does that go though? The ICC, you know, if you've got South Africa, how far do they go with the translators? Right? Um, uh, do they get translators just for a couple of players who may never speak um, in that particular tournament? It really is. It it is a really. It, I've talked to the ICC about this before. I think there's much better ways of doing all this, of course, and um, they should be doing it. I, I think I'll I tell you the story when Pakistan was in Australia. No, Pakistan was in England for um, a, a series a few years back uh, when they were, they were playing Australia um, and they were using England as their home. Um, Umar Gul misspoke in English. And I think he said something that sounded like he was saying that Ricky Ponting wasn't that good. Now, <laughs> there was... Very few Pakistani journalists in the room. I think there might have been one or two Pakistani journalists and there was about seven um, Australian journalists and maybe one or two English journalists there. And we, at the end of that, when he left the room, there was no press officer. <laughs> there was no one there to help him. And he left. And we had to, like, between ourselves go, he didn't mean that, did he? And it didn't go out. And as far as I'm aware, no one wrote about that. And and I've seen that again. I also saw, I forget his name, but there's a really old, respected Indian journalist who who was asked by the BCCI to translate for Umesh Yadav um, when he was in Perth years ago. And it was so awkward because you've got a journalist telling everyone what he's saying. Um, and again, you're putting the journalist in a very bad situation. Um, and and we've certainly, we've seen that before. And look, I've had it before as well, just interviewing players who, you know, English isn't their first language. Um, I'd much prefer to, you know, get translators and everything, but a lot of the players want to speak English as well. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's obvious. Um, it's tricky for the ICC because of the amount of languages involved. I don't even think, you know, FIBA or FIFA have translators for every single language of their players. Um, but you should probably have someone who can speak the national language of the, or the most commonly spoken language of each country. Um, uh, and is involved with that. But at the moment, we're not even close to that, to be honest. As I said, um, people can't say uh, Pat Cummins' name correctly when they're commentating. Um, we're a long way away from um, from having all that. But, yeah, it's um, it's a 
it's a suboptimal thing, but you know, cricket is suboptimal um, when it comes to those sorts of things. Thanks. No worries. Thank you. Jamie, you there? Hey, Jared. How's it going? Not too bad, mate. How are you? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about leadership recently with everything that's gone on with Australia's team and um, and England as well. And the premise of this question is based on, you know, there's three types of leadership, those that help your team, those that make your team worst, and then the, the types of leadership where it just doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. What proportion do you think in world cricket are in which of those camps? And a lot of the time you can only tell afterwards from the outside because you don't know what's going on within. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's almost everything that we talk about in leadership and captaincy is bullshit because a lot of it is anecdotal. And put it this way, I find it impossible to believe that Pat Cummins is a better captain than Joe Root, right? Pat Cummins had never captained in his life, right? Not very smart guy, Pat Cummins. I think he has very good natural instincts. But to think that he would walk into that series and be a better captain than Joe Root, who had been a captain from a very young age, captain a lot of different um, levels of cricket, and then had been very experienced with the England job, I find it very, very hard to believe that Cummins was a better captain than Joe Root. But that's not how we look at that series, right? And that's not, you know, that's not how the, the conversations eventually went. Um, and that comes down to the teams. And when it comes down to it, Australia had a much better team than England's team. And also some of their more fringe players completely overperformed, which, you know, Pat Cummins can be as great a captain as you want. He can't make Scott Boland average eight, right? <laughs> like that's, that's, um, that's dumb luck as much as anything else. And, you know, very good bowling from Scott Boland, but we know that that's not going to last no matter how, how many times he bowls in the MCG. But so I, I would say that there are very few captains who are a negative on their team at international level. Which is probably a leadership structure, sort of the coaches and and beyond that. Again, I, I don't know how we measure all this sort of thing, right? So the Virat Kohli one, I, I did a video. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's on, it's up on YouTube about Virat Kohli. Like, so Virat Kohli's fans will say, "Well, the team was ranked seventh, and then they got, and then they were ranked first, so he must be a great captain." I didn't see anything specifically from Virat Kohli that told me that he transformed that team. I thought he did a lot of smart things, and him and Ravi Shastri certainly ran a very good ship, and I thought they got their team fitter. And Virat Kohli, I think having a captain like Virat Kohli, who's so passionate, probably inspires players at a certain point. But once you become a professional and you play a few times, I think the inspiration thing's kind of nonsense anyway, right? But anyway, when it comes down to it, Virat Kohli had an incredible bowling unit and an incredible, and he had Ravi Jadeja sprout during his reign, right? So he had the world's best all-rounder and he had an absolute ton of great fast bowling talent, back, even backup talent, and he had um, a great um, uh, uh, spin bowling uh, pairing, right? What did he do to make that team better? It's possible nothing, and it just came together on its own. It's possible that he did an absolute shit ton, and, and we won't know. There's no real proper way of judging it, and I think what happens is we generally judge captains based on their funky fields, right? Whereas the real captaincy isn't the funky fields. It's getting the guy who is, could go either way and make him into a great player. Um, it's getting the player who, you know, probably isn't quite good enough, but you know, you can get about 10 or 15 tests out of them as a really good role player. Um, it's all those sorts of things. It's, it's coming up with really good long-term plans with your captain, with your director of cricket, with your general manager, whatever that, uh, you know, that role may be. Um, again, that's really hard to see. So, so one of the best ones is the Brendan McCullum one where 
at the time, everyone went, Brendan McCullum has completely changed New Zealand cricket. And then it was like, Brendan McCullum and Mike Hesson have completely changed New Zealand cricket. Then it was Brendan McCullum and Mike Hesson. Also, Kane Williamson's made it even better. And Gary Stead is there as well. And actually, it's the organizational structure of New Zealand cricket. And it was the person who probably first decided to make their domestic cricket as professional. Then it was the fact that they fixed their domestic pitches. Then it was their coaching. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's re- like what? There's no doubt that Brendan McCallum got the star players from New Zealand to focus more on playing for New Zealand, right? But there's also no doubt that had they not done all those other things, Kane Williamson wouldn't be in a position to be where he is. Does that mean that Kane Williamson's not a good captain? No, I, I, surely not. And I don't think that Brendan McCullum's a bad captain either. But if you put them in the exact same situation, but with no good setup around them, would we be talking about them as great captains? Probably not, right? I, I, I always go back to, my, my, you know, because I'm old, Jamie. Um, I always go back to my, my favorite one of, if someone can show me the the proof that uh, Steve Waugh was a better captain than Heath Streak, I would love to see it. Right? If you put if you put Heath Streak in the Australian cricket team in the same era that Steve Waugh led it, I think Heath Streak would have done absolutely brilliantly. Um, I, you know, they probably would have been happy to have you know a, a, a player who's virtually an all rounder as well. Um, uh, he might have weakened the bowling a little bit, but but um, uh, he uh, you know. A fantastic um, competitor he streak was, so was Steve Waugh. Got the absolute most out of himself as a player, so did Steve Waugh. Tactically, neither of them were particularly great. I never thought, I never watched either of them and went, oh, wow, they're doing this. Their players absolutely love playing for them, though, a lot of the times, and they would run through brick walls for them. That tells you something. Does it tell you that one captain's better than the other? No. And I think that's where it all gets a bit tricky for me. Um, uh I think there's absolutely no doubt that the way that MS Stoney uses his resources on a T20 field is more effective than the way other captains sometimes use their resources on a T20 field. It's also fair to say that MS Stoney has not captained many poor teams, you know, whether it be test uh, test match or T20 or one day. He's had pretty strong teams almost all the way through from the, from the time he took over the job. So it's tricky, I suppose is the best way of putting it. Yeah, the trickiness is is what makes it interesting. And I, I kind of get the sense that you only get a picture of what was going on within a team, whether it's successful or, or otherwise, years afterwards when the books come out and the stories come out and then the wall of silence starts to fall and you start to hear stories about who wasn't getting on with who. So I'm wondering whether with your background of you know having sat on the bench with teams, I listened to that podcast recently, whether there's particular signs that you can sort of look for, for to think, okay, yeah, this management team is is failing their players. I think when I've worked with teams, the more obvious thing has been that the structure is right or wrong. That's the thing that I've always noticed. So working with Melbourne Stars, we didn't have as many staff as we would want, but it was quite clear that Trent Woodhill knew exactly what his job was. Damian Fleming knew what his job was. The assistants knew what their jobs were. Glenn Maxwell knew what his job was. They knew where the next players they were going to be up bringing up were. They knew what everyone's role was. Everyone knew, well, I would have hoped everyone within the the playing staff knew roughly why they were in the squad and what they, they were to do. When I've worked with St. Lucia, that wasn't the case and everything was anarchy. When I worked with Scotland, it was far less professional than Melbourne Stars. That's much easier to see than, you know, so if you look at the three captains I worked with there, so it's uh, Kyle Kutzer, um, Kyron Pollard and Glenn Maxwell, they all had different strengths 
and were, you know, so I, I thought Maxwell was probably the best one at reading the game on the field. Uh, Kyle is, this, you know, very good at getting the players to buy into what he wants and is a very good communicator. And Kyron Pollard is very smart at T20 knowledge. And also when he speaks, you know, the room goes silent, right? They all had strengths. They all have weaknesses. Um, they're all very, very good leaders. But for me, I didn't come away. Like when I wrote reports on working with those three teams, almost none of my reports are on the captaincy. Almost all my reports are on the structure of the squad, who's doing what, why they're doing this, how we can get better. Um, captaincy is almost, you know, I, I don't know what I wrote for. I probably wrote 30,000 words for St. Lucia and there was probably less than 500 on Karen Pollard's captaincy. So I think that tells you how little it sort of goes into my thinking when I'm working with the team. For me, it's more about how I can communicate with the captain directly or, or how the captain and the coach are, are communicating directly in that particular case. Um, but yeah, but uh, thanks for your question, mate. Thank you. Uh, Tom said, lots of press about the MCC scrapping some traditional fixtures in Eton and Harrow and Oxford versus Cambridge. What sort of games could replace those if the MCC was serious about promoting cricket development and opportunity for younger players? Yeah, it should probably, I mean, it should be the, the, the best players from the, the, the um, state schools would probably be the best way to replace the Eton and Harrow. Absolutely ridiculous that Eton and Harrow is still playing at Lords when the women have virtually never played there before. Abs it makes me so angry that Eton versus Harrow was still a thing um, at Lords. I'm not saying they shouldn't still play it. And I, you know, obviously people from those two schools can care if they want to. Um, but the standard of cricket isn't even that, that high. I mean, probably the last time that Eton versus Harrow was very good was probably when Nick Compton was captain of, Harrow, was he? I think that's right. And um, Sam Collins, my former partner, was captain of Eton. That's probably the last time that those were, you know, decently strong teams. So, yeah, preposterous, Tom. Absolutely no doubt. But, yeah, uh, more women's games at Lords would be another great one as well. As, especially, like, a North versus South women's game would be absolutely great. I think you could do that, you know, at the start of the year or something. More women's cricket, um, certainly, would be great. Shramana, you can talk again if you'd like. Okay. So, Kind of a cricket, more cricket question right now. So, uh, in the Australia series with Sri Lanka, there was a lot of talk about how Steve Smith kept saying that he's the fixer of the group. That he goes in when something is, uh, like, a lot of wickets have fallen. But like a captain changes the baller on field, depending on the situation, can't it happen that sitting in the dugout, if suppose the throw a wicket falls and Steve Smith has not batted yet, he goes like, no, okay, it's fine. Marcus Torres and Matthew Wade go right now. And if then that means Steve Smith doesn't back today, fine. If there's nothing to fix, then why send in the fixer? Is that kind of flexibility something we can expect in the future or is it done? Yeah, yeah. we've certainly seen um, teams do that. I think Darren Bravo probably, I'm pretty sure Darren Bravo didn't bat in a game for the West Indies recently in that similar kind of role that you're talking about. Look, the Australian teams had a lot of trouble trying to get Steve Smith to kind of buy into what they want him to do. So originally he kept saying he wanted to bat at number three like i'm number three about at number three and they were like well actually you're number four and i could promise you this well i don't know if they showed him my video on batting at number four but they certainly talked to him about the points i made in my video about how he would be more suited to batting at number four than batting at number three and at the same time when you don't need him he just doesn't come in and i think that for me that that is a very normal thing to do but you've got to understand that the testosterone and ego and nonsense that is involved in a cricket team uh, doesn't always allow for that and it should you're right there were things i was very good at at crick info and there were things i was not very i was not very good at 
you know, and they purposely never let me do ball by ball, certainly as a, as a permanent thing, because they just didn't think I'd be as good at it as I was at other things, right? And I didn't see it as a slight, but realistically, ball by ball is kind of the biggest gig in Crick Info. You know, it's the thing that is most read. And, you know, I could have either gone away and worked on my ball by ball skills or, or not. And I think that, unfortunately, in sport, that's not quite how things work too, uh, more often than not. And what they've been trying to do is get him to buy into that. I think the fact that they're calling him the fixer and he's calling himself the fixer is actually a huge step forward. I don't think he would have called himself that a couple of years ago. Um, he still thought, saw himself as very much a T20 star at that point. So, yeah, I think you're right. The way you're thinking about it is right, but you have to understand the fragile... I'm going to assume that you're a woman. Um, you do have a face mask on. <laughs> I think... How old are you? 18. Okay. Well, you've got literally, hopefully, another at least 82 years of your life to learn how shit men are at everything. <laughs> and there's a perfect example of, in a women's cricket team, I reckon you would actually find it easier to probably push people into different roles because they'd be like, okay, I get it. When I did St. Lucia... It was actually when we were remodeling the team, I was basically coming up with a, with a plan of having a couple of guys as our specialist death bowlers, and I was going to bring in an overseas power play bowler. And the coach was like, yeah, that's not going to go down well. And I was like, why not? And he said, because they'll see that as getting the other guy to come in and do the easy job while they have to do the hard job. And I was like, but they're rubbish at that, at the power play. They're going to, it's going to, they're terrible at it. Like I'm, I'm taking that away. So their figures will look better. He's like, yeah, they won't see it that way. Uh, so welcome to men. Uh, would be uh, the easiest way of saying that. But you're you're right, and it should happen more. I'd like to think in the future that I think this has to start happening at junior level. So if you had a player at junior level that you, you you know, um, and I'm talking more underage because, you know, at junior level, you know, when he's very young, Steve Smith's going to bat wherever he needs to bat. But once he gets to under 15s and under 17s, under 19s representative cricket, they should already be playing in different roles. Um, And they should understand that. Got to remember, Steve Smith came from a thing of cricket where he thinks batting at number three is the most important role. That's why he wants to bat at number three. Whereas you and I look at it as, well, you don't have the skills that we need for you to bat at number. We don't need you batting in the power play, Steve Smith, unless we've lost two quick wickets and we're in all sorts of trouble, or the ball's ragging sideways and we need our best batter. That's what. That's how you have to sell it to him. And the fact that he's using this fixer name, I think, makes sense. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm all for it. Thank you very much for your question. And good luck for all that life of dealing with men. Siddharth, I couldn't hear you. Uh, you ask if Bradman is the most powerful authority figure we have had in cricket. Um, no, that was probably be Andrew Vassan, <laughs> um, realistically. Uh, now, Br- Bradman was big. I-, I wonder, was Bradman bigger than Richie Benno? Uh, famous in more, you know, over uh, quite a few different generations to different audiences. I'd say Richie, I mean... I'd say Richie's probably more powerful um, and more authoritative than Bradman. But then again, maybe Richie's more my generation. You probably have to talk to someone who's old enough to have sort of lived through both. Um, but it's a very, very interesting question. Sadly, you couldn't ask it with your own human voice. Simon, you there? Well, actually, your response to Shramana's last point made me add to something I was going to say, which is I really enjoyed your Anderson Broad analysis. And... It seems that cricket has a real problem with people wanting certain roles, especially the new ball. Mm. And I just wondered whether you thought there could be a better use of Broad and Anderson as second or third change in certain conditions. We've seen Anderson wait for reverse, for example, Mm. at certain points in recent history. And do you think that the 
deselection of these two is primarily because lack of imagination on behalf of the selectors to think, why don't we use them in a different role to help develop others so that they can get their 6.3 or whatever the number was wickets. Yeah. And others make better use of the new ball. I mean, the thing is that if you take the new ball away from them, I can't imagine they're going to get any more than 6.2 wickets between them, right? The truth is that they are so new ball dependent uh, as bowlers. Uh, Anderson, uh, not in England, but outside of England, I think even more dependent on the new ball. You are right about reverse swing. When Stuart Broad was probably a little bit younger and a little bit faster, they had the ability to you know, use the short ball much better. Uh, but at his current pace, I can't imagine he would do that. I think that's where it gets tricky. So I think this is one of the big problems with England cricket is that the Dukes basically teaches you how to bowl with a ball that does something. Whereas if you look at South African bowlers and Australian bowlers and now the New Zealand bowlers coming through, they, their seamers and, and the Asian seamers have always known how to do this. Um, they are all used to bowling on much flatter pitches. And so they have the ability naturally to be better with the older ball. Um, I don't think that is the case with Anderson or Broad unless they tried them, unless that, that is something that they had tried earlier on. I really think the, the bigger problem with Anderson and Broad is, so if you look at everyone, outside of Mark Wood, of England's best 10 seam bowlers, tell me another one that you could easily bowl at first change and it wouldn't lessen their impact. And I don't think there is one. Whereas if you look at Pat Cummins or Neil Wagner or Mornay Morkel, there's a bunch of guys there who are brilliant first change bowlers, right? Absolutely outstanding. Um, you could probably put someone like Jason Holder in that, in that, in that as well. Those guys are very well suited to being first change. England cricket, because of the conditions, it's like everyone's a new ball bowler, right? You know, uh, if, if you if you pick up the Duke's ball at the 25th over mark, it's still probably like a new ball, like a new kookaburra um, in the way that it moves, in the way that it seems, in the, you know, in the way that it swings. Um, uh, so England as a um, cricket society is not producing first-change bowlers. And if you look through the he- history of English cricket, outside of a couple of all-rounders, I don't think they've ever had a great first-change bowler we, uh, I'm trying to think if Flintoff might have been one, but I remember when I did my history of first-change bowlers when I was looking at Neil Wagner, I don't remember England names being that prevalent. I remembered names like Garner and Callis and Cummins and Wagner um, popping up, and you don't see it as much with with, England, uh, with English bowlers, and I think that's because naturally they are also new ball dependent, which is why perhaps... You know, Jofra Archer has the ability, if, if he was fully fit, to be a better overseas bowler in the way, same way that Darren Goff was or that a- Andrew Flintoff was when they travelled, just because their skill set means that they can be quite good with the new ball, which is how you have to be to get through English cricket. But they also have the ability then to adapt and evolve in other climates because their natural best ball is still very good in those other climates. Whereas I don't think that is quite the case for Anderson and Broad. Um, they are so... So much more like traditional English bowlers. Does that make sense when I when I put it like that? Yeah, I think yeah, I was just intrigued as to because predominantly the way that Anderson and Broad work is containment, right? Yeah, they keep economy down and their average is good. And there's a massive fixation in English cricket of avoiding the other statistic, which is strike rate. Yeah. Whereas it seems that Australians and South Africans and the Indian subcontinent have a much better understanding of how important strike rate is. 
Yeah, but I think if, if you think about it, someone, so someone asked me the other day about the Broad and Anderson situation. I'm trying to remember the exact question they put to me, but, but essentially they were saying, why is it that they don't take wickets overseas? And the thing is, if you're bowling like Jimmy Anderson in Australia, people can drive you on the up, right? You don't have that ability to contain anymore, and he doesn't have the extra skill that he needs. And the same with Broad. That's not that they're, that's not that they're shit bowlers. It's just that they are so much more of their location because in their area, we, you and I both know, we've both seen these guys do it. They can bowl six overs for six runs anytime they want, right, uh, in England. It's just not, that's not a problem for Broad or Anderson to be able to do. It's a, that's much harder when they go overseas, which means that they need the conditions even more in their favor, which means when the conditions aren't in their favor, I think what has happened, part of the reason that they take fewer wickets than you would expect is because it's almost like they don't want to bowl unless they have the ability to either take wickets or contain because that is what they know. And they don't know how to bowl that. Oh, Zahi Khan's one of the most underrated bowlers ever and his bowling average hasn't didn't end up good enough um, for people to remember him. But I always remember that Zahi Khan on very flat pitches would just go, fuck it. I'm going to bowl basically half follies here. I'm going to go for a bunch of Yorkers. I'm going to bowl as fast as I can. The ball's going to come out of my hand anywhere, and I'm going to completely go away with my control. We all know that Zahi Khan had brilliant control when he wanted it, but he had that other way of doing it. I don't think Broad or Anderson really have that. They don't have the ability to go, fuck it, we're going to try something completely, completely different. They'll come up with different tactics, but they won't sort of let themselves go. And that's partly because everything they have done has worked so well for them. And they will point to their averages. And I don't mean this in a bad way, because this happens a lot in cricket. They'll point to their averages when they travel. And they're both like, we average, we both average, even in our careers, just a hair over 30. And Jimmy Anderson would be like, I averaged 23 in the last five years. And I don't know what broad is, might be 27, 28 in the last five years. Those are still good records, right? And they will point to that. As you said, the problem is it's the strike rate and also in their case, just the amount of wickets that they're not taking. They're being, they've probably been allowed to get away with it. And I don't mean this in a bad way. Um, I mean in a way of no one has been able to confront them and go, guys, it doesn't matter if you both average 25 if Scott Boland takes as many fucking wickets as you in an Ashes, right? And I think that is a really, really... It's re and it's hard for England cricket to, to say that to Broad and Anderson because they've been the two best players. Right, they, you know, they, the, them, Root and Stokes are the only sort of automatic selections. Besto, you know, has been in and out the side, and people have never been quite sure about Butler. That there's no one else since Alistair Cook that's been automatic. So it's been really tricky to go to them and say that. But when it comes down to it, that's kind of the issue, right? The issue isn't that they have that they average they that they average forty when they travel because they don't. The issue is that they keep good averages, but they don't have the impact that you need. And part of that reason is, is that when they take the, uh, the wickets or when they're trying to contain, they don't have the ability on the days when the conditions aren't in their favor just to actually make something happen. And that comes back to if you grew up on England wickets and you've taken a lot of wickets with the Duke's ball, um, it makes sense. And Anderson probably, if you put Anderson, if you put Anderson's early pace um, an ability with his brain now. Anderson probably is that bowler, right? He probably, Anderson probably Dale Steen, if you combine all of his career into 10 years, but his career's actually been almost 20 years. And the first 10 years was being, you know, young, dumb and full of cum. And the next 10 years is being an absolute fucking genius, right? If you could have 
match those two things together, he would be able to do that. And with Broad, we know that when everything was fully firing and he understood what he was doing and he's running through the crease properly, he had the ability to do that as well. But consistently, we know that they just aren't on that level and they've never been on that level. That's great. Can I ask one more thing on that? Which is, do you think another contributory factor is basically the lack of runs that they have to protect? I think the lack of runs that they have to protect causes a problem. But this is, if you go, if you, even if you go back to their golden era, they had good series. They were never consistent threats away from home, even when England was making a lot more runs and even when England had better batting. So it doesn't help that they're not making any runs, right? Like, so if you think about it from an Anderson point of view, go back to your strike rate thing. We, you, you, there's so many times they have a look at Anderson and like England will bowl out a team for like 250 or something. And Anderson will have taken, you know, three for 50, right? Looks great on his average. He's taken the wickets, but they've made 250. Have a look at some of the scores that teams are making around the world now. You really need, you really need the Anderson of England outside of England, right? The guy who can take six for 12, who, you know, um, well, that's more broad, but, you know, the guy who can take the ridiculous um, figures um, now because 250 is now no longer that good a score on a lot of these wickets, right? It seems at 170, 160. And if that's the case, you probably need the person who takes the big wickets in huge bundles. And that's never been Anderson Singh because, as you said, he's really bowling to contain and then take wickets, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do but you need seven batters to be able to help you. You don't need a great batting lineup, but you need a solid batting lineup. And he hasn't had a solid batting lineup since 2012. And so he would have to be remarkably better than Ishan Sharma has been, than Pat Cummins has been, um, and that those other guys have been to have anywhere near the impact that they've had just because they've had some batters to be able to hold that up. So I do think it plays a part. Thanks for your question. Thank you. And Depeche, you should be there for the last question. Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. So my question is, uh, like, we see that there's, like, a change in the T20 cricket that we play right now as compared to maybe five years or seven years back. Mm-hmm. So at that point of time, the role of the anchor, every team had an anchor, and it was very predominant. It was very, it was a role which, you know, an experienced batsman was playing. Uh, so currently, do you think that anchor role is something which is still important in a T20 game? Because... Uh, Things have moved very fast and everybody now focuses on the strike rate too much and nobody really pays attention to the anchor role. Because anyways, teams bat deep these days, so even if they lose that wicket, they still have somebody else who can cover it up. So what is your view about it, about this anchor position, which pretty much every team has? And it's mostly the important batsmen like Virat Kohli is for India and Kane Williamson is for New Zealand. Barbara Azam, yeah. Somebody like a Milan or a Joe Root for England. So that is a thing. Yeah, look, I always thought it was a pretty silly idea in T20 cricket because the way that 120 balls can be carved up, you really want to use the most of your resources. So I was never a big fan. It's not to say that... So there's almost a way of being an anchor. Like, I don't know what Luke Ronke's um, average was over the last few years, but my guess is he probably averaged around 30 to 35 for a long period of time, but with a high strike rate. That is so much better than someone averaging 45 with a low strike rate right? If you think about it in Ronke's case, I think his strike rate was 155 for a long period in a lot of those leagues that he played in. Um, and he's facing, what, anywhere between 18 to 24 balls and in innings. Um, that's so much more useful than someone else facing over 30 balls and not doing so efficiently. 
I think part of it is just that that's how we played one-day cricket, right? The anchor role had always been quite important in one-day cricket. And in one-day cricket, you kind of have it twice, that role. You kind of had the top-order anchor, and then you have the sort of the closer anchor, you know, the MS Stoney or Michael Bevan um, type player who takes the game very deep um, and gets behind the chase but keeps the team in it as long as possible, even when, if they don't have many wickets left. So I think that it just come, it came from that thinking naturally. And also it goes back to something we are talking about, well, I was talking about with Simon a minute ago about the, the bowlers looking at their averages. I, I have had conversations with top T20 players where I've said to them, what are you doing? Like no one's going to hire you anymore. Your strike rates dropped off the book and they're like, oh, second leading run scorer last year. No one's going to hire me, hey? I was like, no, no one cares if you're the second leading top run scorer. Oh, you know, I've, I've got a really good average. No one cares if you've got a really good average. Those things are becoming irrelevant. And I think that there are a lot of players, especially probably, you know, over the age of 27, 28, who still think in those sort of conventional ways. And, you know, it's not that they're wrong because certainly there are still teams who believe in that. But from an efficiency standpoint, it's like it doesn't make any sense the way that a lot of really ta- – you know, I, I'm trying to think of uh, – I look at Baba Azam sometimes and I just like, mate, average 10 less and put 10 on your strike rate and you'll be more important. It, it really is. It's that simple sometimes. And there's no reason why a very talented player like him doesn't have that ability. It really is that it's drummed into them to pick the best shots. And you hear it on commentary still. You still hear people say things like, oh, oh it's clever. He hit a boundary last ball and now he's rotated the strike. It's like, No. He can hit a boundary against this bowler. He's just got another ball that's in his zone. Why on earth would he turn that to leg side for one? So I still think there's a lot of conservative thinking within T20 batting. Um, but, you know, the professional sports is probably more conservative than we would want it to be. You know, to go back to um, Shramana's question before, um, you know, and, and, and I suppose Simon's question just from a moment ago, like teams are quite conservative, right? And professional sport is quite conservative because if they get make this wrong – they get this wrong, it's their career on the line. And I think it was Muhammad Afiz talking about it recently, about how long it took the penny to drop. I've been looking at Muhammad Afiz for years and just going, oh, what? This should be one of the best T20 players in the world. And he's not because he refuses to just slog. He refuses to just get more power into his game, to hit the ball harder. And we knew he could do it. And then suddenly, the last couple of years, he just exploded as a T20 player. And you see these players all the time, and I find it very frustrating, but I understand where they're coming from as well. They're doing what they've always done. They're doing what got them to this level, and it's hard for them to change. And as far as the teams go, it's much easier to have a bunch of anchors and be beaten scoring 170 over and over again than it is to get bowled out for 110 a couple of times and have the riskier teams. And we've seen in franchise cricket, when teams have tried the sort of all-out attack very rarely have they got it right because of the sort of players they've picked. And that's because to get it right, you have to pay so much money and it doesn't always work. So it, it's a really tricky thing to be able to do correctly anyway. But yeah, there should be less anchors. That is correct. Thank you very much, Dipesh. Thank you to everyone. Long episode. How did I go that long? Thank you to everyone. Obviously, huge thanks to the people on Buy Me A Coffee, but also the Patreon people specifically. If you support us on Patreon, you can actually ask questions if you're at their first class level or above. Huge shout out to everyone on Patreon. That's the reason this podcast exists really is because of the support that we've had on Patreon. Manscaped as well with their sponsorship. There's been some really good videos recently if you haven't seen them. So there's the old T21 that I was talking about before. The Akshar Patel one, I really, really 
happy with the way that that one came out. And obviously the Broad and Anderson one, there's some good stuff there. And go and support. And if you can't support us financially, retweets and tell your friends and make your mum listen on your phone any way that you can. The more listeners that we get, the better. So thanks to everyone for coming on to the green room as well and asking their questions. I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.